The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf with another podcast. We welcome as our guest today, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, formerly a professor of theology. He was Archbishop of Munich, then Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he now gloriously reigns, as I speak, as Benedict XVI. Today we continue with his 1991 talk on conscience and truth, delivered to a gathering of American bishops in Dallas, Texas. In the first part of Cardinal Ratzinger's talk on conscience and truth, he gives us some preliminary remarks and then moves into the first part of the talk, a conversation on the erroneous conscience and first inferences. He depends on this on some personal recollections of conversations he had with colleagues about the justifying power of conscience and whether or not a person who is totally convinced of his, the rightness of his position is thereby justified and is morally clean, as it were. Um, he works through the obvious contradictions that come from that, but then seeks to find the basis for determining where a properly formed conscience is. What is the individual's relationship to the truth? Uh, how do we know when we are on the right track and the wrong track? And therefore, he has to get into issues of guilt, which prod us to look for the truth. And, of course, what happens when we completely uh, reject uh, guilt or when we blunt our moral sense? What happens then? Uh, the terrible things that happen in society and to an individual. We become slaves to subjectivity and we become the toys or maybe like feathers on the wind of prevailing trends and opinions and uh, modes and styles from outside of us. We are forced into consensus. We are forced to conform. We wind up eventually in a trackless waste. In the second part of the talk, we have a, a tour de force of references uh, Ratzinger uh, uses the example of Newman and Socrates as guides to conscience. Newman, he reminds us, explored the issue of conscience for a great deal of his uh, for a great deal of his life. And for Newman, as Ratzinger says, the middle term, which is which establishes the connection between authority and subjectivity, is truth. And so Newman grapples with the issue of truth. Ratzinger also introduces Socrates and Plato and the debate between different fundamental positions between the Platonists and the, the Sophists. For example, uh, on the one hand, there are those who have a confidence in man's capacity for truth, and on the other hand, there's a view in which man alone sets standards for himself. And he has to work through this. Of course, we will come back to a platonic uh, point in this third part. And uh, then Ratzinger 
uh, before he concludes his second part, gets into the uh, idea of man being able to explore not just the fact that he can do something, but whether or not he should do something. Now, we get into the third part of the talk, and as you listen, you want to tune your ears for a few things. Remember first Ratzinger's audience. These are bishops. Ratzinger presumes that they still remember something about philosophy. He uses, therefore, some technical terms, and he will define some of them, leaving uh, some others a bit vague when they're not absolutely central to what he's doing. For example, the term synderesis, which is the natural capacity of reason to know the first principles of human action. But he quickly moves past this difficult term and on to anamnesis, which is remembrance, referring to Platonic philosophy. This is an idea that souls remember things that they have just forgotten. They have to call forth from the memory things that we have forgotten. Ratzinger explains how he understands anamnesis, and it should be pretty clear in the course of his talk. Um, it seems to me, however, um, and this is a bit of a digression, when he's talking about what anamnesis brings to us, uh, so long as we are not turned in on ourselves, this anamnesis that he's talking about in this third part of his talk might also pertain to Ratzinger's liturgical vision. Uh, anamnesis, which is remembrance or memorial, is also a liturgical term. It's a constant theme in Ratzinger's thought that we should not be turned in on ourselves in a closed circle, either as individuals or as a community. We have to be, we have to make sure to open up windows. He uses the image of a window or door, open to the world outward. And especially uh, in our liturgical worship, we have to be opened, open outward, oriented to Christ who is coming. And this is one of the reasons why we all priest and people should face Christ together, either by placing a cross, crucifix upon the altar to which we both orient ourselves, or uh, we all face the same direction, the liturgical east. That's, of course, the superior way to do it. And the so-called Benedictine arrangement with the crucifix on the altar between the priest and the people is a transitional thing, but I digress. Anyway, Ratzinger connects this notion of anamnesis to mission, which is, of course, Christian evangelization. Now, the bishops, Ratzinger's audience, are the first in line for this task, but all Christians share in the church's mission. Now, pay attention uh, to the line in here that nothing belongs to me less than myself. I think it's a great insight. It reminds me, in a way, of Augustine's insight that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Ratzinger also talks about the true nature of the Petrine office. And this is rather poignant, considering what is going to happen to him in another 16 years. As you listen to this part, you'll hear the word bridges in here. Remember that um, the bishops he is speaking to are pontifices. They are a pontifex is a bridge builder. Attend also to his distinction of being uh, about being ordered to rather than being in opposition to. Uh, you're also going to hear the word 
uh, myutic. This goes back to Platonic or Socratic method again. It refers to the idea that truth is already in the mind of every person. It just has to be brought out or given uh, birth to, as it were, through proper questions. That's at the heart of the Socratic method and the Platonic dialogues. You ask questions in order to bring the truth out. I think it was Socrates who referred him to himself only as uh, truth's midwife. He's trying to help people give birth to the truth out of their minds because it's already in there. When Ratzinger speaks about Gnostics in here, as opposed to Christians, I can't help but think of those who within the church are lying to Catholics, saying that their consciences can completely trump the church's teachings. Of course, that's precisely what Ratzinger is trying to set up here. He's trying to set up um, for us how we can have a conscience which is free and still have a proper understanding of... Of course, that's what's, what Ratzinger is dealing with in this whole talk. He's trying to help us understand how we can have a, a, a free conscience, but our but we're not free absolutely from outside authority. And this, of course, pertains to how Catholics understand their relationship to the magisterium and the freedom or the primacy of their own conscience. They are ordered to each other. They're not in opposition to each other. They're, they're absolutely the, the, the Christian conscience needs the authority of the church. But in this section, of course, Ratzinger is going to talk about uh, the Petrine ministry. And I think that within this, there's a key to Benedict's own style of governance during his pontificate. Uh, he says, for example, the Pope does not impose from without. Uh, what Ratzinger, uh, Pope Ratzinger seems to be doing, as a matter of fact, is setting examples, especially in liturgical worship. I think he's trying to get us to wake up and remember who we are again. That's that perhaps myutic process that he's engaged in. And uh, when, by the way, when Ratzinger mentions toast, the toasts in here, that he's talking about Newman's famous toast, which is in an earlier part of this talk. When you hear him talk about the destructive power of social conformity, you might just consider all the groups that are tearing apart Catholic identity from within and, sadly, also from without right now, the great social debates that we were having. He will talk about the narrow sense of conscience in which even an erroneous conscience can bind. You know, pay, pay real close attention to that part because that's where he really sorts out something that is deeply wrong in those who say that Catholics can just set aside the magisterium, the church, and act uh, out of the primacy of their own conscience. It's really where, where he gets to it. He doesn't come right down and say, now therefore X, he's going to make you make the conclusion yourself. And hang on to your hats if, if he's already brought in uh, psychoanalysis and Einstein and... Uh, Thomas More and Newman and Socrates and so forth. Well, he go, he continues to give you uh, a good workout here. This time he brings in Aeschylus, and it's pretty powerful stuff. So here's the third 
and final part of Joseph Ratzinger's talk entitled Conscience of Truth, presented at the 10th Workshop for Bishops in February of 1991 in Dallas, Texas. This section is called Systematic Consequences, Two Levels of Conscience, Anomnesis, Conscientia, and then it's all followed by an epithet. Systematic Consequences, the Two Levels of Conscience, Section A, Anomnesis. After all these ramblings through intellectual history, it is finally time to arrive at some conclusions, that is, to formulate a concept of conscience. The medieval tradition was right, I believe, in according two levels to the concept of conscience. These levels, though they can be well distinguished, must be continually referred to each other. It seems to me that many unacceptable theses regarding conscience are the result of neglecting either the difference or the connection between the two. Mainstream scholasticism expressed these two levels in the concepts syndericis and conscientia. The word syndericis, syntericis, came into the medieval tradition of conscience from the Stoic doctrine of the microcosm. It remained unclear in its exact meaning, and for this reason became a hindrance to a careful development of this essential aspect of the whole question of conscience. I would like, therefore, without entering into philosophical disputes, to replace this problematic word with a much more clearly defined platonic concept of anamnesis. It is not only linguistically clearer and philosophically deeper and purer, but anamnesis above all also harmonizes with key motifs of biblical thought and the anthropology derived therefrom. The word anamnesis should be taken to mean exactly what Paul expressed in the second chapter of his letter to the Romans. Quote, when Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Romans 2, verses 14 and following. The same thought is strikingly amplified in the great monastic rule of St. Basil. Here we read, quote, the love of God is not founded on a discipline imposed on us from outside, but is constitutively established in us as the capacity and necessity of our rational nature. Basil speaks in terms of quote, the spark of divine love which has been hidden in us, close quote, an expression which was to become important in medieval mysticism. In the spirit of Joannine theology, Basil knows that love consists in keeping the commandments. For this reason, the spark of love which has been put into us by the Creator means this, quote, We have received interiorly beforehand 
the capacity and disposition for observing all divine commandments. These are not something imposed from without. Referring everything back to its simple core, Augustine adds, quote, We could never judge that one thing is better than another if a basic understanding of the good had not already been instilled in us. This means that the first so-called ontological level of the phenomenon conscience consists in the fact that something like an original memory of the good and true, both are identical, has been implanted in us, that there is an inner ontological tendency within man who is created in the likeness of God toward the divine. From its origin, man's being resonates with some things and clashes with others. This anamnesis of the origin, which results from the godlike constitution of our being, is not a conceptually articulated knowing, a store of retrievable contents. It is, so to speak, an inner sense, a capacity to recall, so that the one whom it addresses, if he is not turned in on himself, hears its echo from within. He sees, that's it. That is what my nature points to and seeks. The possibility for and the right to mission rest on this anamnesis of the Creator which is identical to the ground of our existence. The gospel may indeed be proclaimed to the pagans because they themselves are yearning for it in the hidden recesses of their souls. Confer Isaiah 42, verse 4. Mission is vindicated, then, when those addressed recognize in the encounter with the word of the gospel that this is indeed what they have been waiting for. In this sense, Paul can say, the Gentiles are a law to themselves, not in the sense of modern liberal notions of autonomy, which preclude transcendence of the subject, but in the much deeper sense that nothing belongs less to me than myself. My own I is the sight of the profoundest surpassing of self and contact with him from whom I came and toward whom I am going. In these sentences, Paul expresses the experience which he has had as missionary to the Gentiles, and which Israel may have experienced before him in dealings with the God-fearing. Israel could have experienced among the Gentiles what the ambassadors of Jesus Christ found reconfirmed. Their proclamation answered an expectation. Their proclamation encountered an antecedent basic knowledge of the essential constants of the will of God, which came to be written down in the commandments, which can be found in all cultures, and which can be all the more clearly elucidated the less an overbearing cultural bias distorts this primordial knowledge. The more man lives in the fear of the Lord, consider the story of Cornelius, especially Acts 10, verses 34 to 35, the more concretely and clearly effective this anamnesis becomes. Again, let us take a formulation of St. Basil. 
The love of God, which is concrete in the commandments, is not imposed on us from without, the church father emphasizes, but has been implanted in us beforehand. The sense for the good has been stamped upon us, Augustine puts it. Now we can appreciate Newman's toast first to conscience and then to the Pope. The Pope cannot impose commandments on faithful Catholics because he wants to or finds it expedient. Such a modern, voluntaristic concept of authority can only distort the true theological meaning of the papacy. The true nature of the Petrine office has become so incomprehensible in the modern age, no doubt because we only think of authority in terms which do not allow for bridges between subject and object. Accordingly, everything which does not come from the subject is thought to be externally imposed. But the situation is really quite different, according to the anthropology of conscience, which, through these reflections, we have hopefully appreciated. The anamnesis instilled in our being needs, one might say, assistance from without, so that it can become aware of itself. But this from without is not something set in opposition to anamnesis, but ordered to it. It has a maiutic function, imposes nothing foreign, but brings to fruition what is proper to anamnesis, namely its interior openness to the truth. When we are dealing with the question of faith and church, whose radius extends from the redeeming logos over the gift of creation, we must, however, take into account yet another dimension which is especially developed in the Joannine writings. John is familiar with the anamnesis of the new we, which is granted to us in the incorporation into Christ. One body, that is, one I with him. In remembering they knew him, so the gospel has it in a number of places, the original encounter with Jesus gave the disciples what all generations thereafter receive in their foundational encounter with the Lord in baptism and the Eucharist, namely, the new anamnesis of faith, which unfolds similarly to the anamnesis of creation, in constant dialogue between within and without. In contrast to the presumption of Gnostic teachers, who wanted to convince the faithful that their naive faith must be understood and applied much differently, John could say, You do not need such instruction, for as anointed ones that is baptized, you know everything. Confer, first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 20. This does not mean a factual omniscience on the part of the faithful. It does signify, however, the sureness of the Christian memory. This Christian memory, to be sure, is always learning, but proceeding from its sacramental identity. It also distinguishes from within between what is a genuine unfolding of its recollection and what is its destruction or falsification. In the crisis of the church today, 
the power of this recollection and the truth of the apostolic word is experienced in an entirely new way where much more so than hierarchical direction it is the power of memory of the simple faith which leads to the discernment of spirits one can only comprehend the primacy of the pope and its correlation to christian conscience in this connection the true sense of this teaching authority of the pope consists in his being the advocate of the christian memory the pope does not impose from without rather he elucidates the christian memory and defends it for this reason the toast to conscience indeed must precede the toast to the pope because without conscience there would not be a papacy all power that the papacy has is power of conscience it is service to the double memory upon which the faith is based and which again and again must be purified expanded and defended against the destruction of memory which is threatened by a subjectivity forgetful of its own foundation as well as by the pressures of social and cultural conformity. Section B. Conscientia Having considered this first essentially ontological level of the concept of conscience, we must now turn to its second level, that of judgment and decision, which the medieval tradition designates with the single word conscientia, conscience. Presumably this terminological tradition has not insignificantly contributed to the diminution of the concept of conscience. Thomas, for example, only designates this second level as conscientia. For him it stands to reason that conscience is not a habitus, that is, a lasting ontic quality of man, but actus, an event in execution. Thomas, of course, assumes as given the ontological foundation of anamnesis, syndesis. He describes anamnesis as an inner repugnance to evil and an attraction to good. The act of conscience applies this basic knowledge to the particular situation. It is divided, according to Thomas, into three elements, recognizing, reconoscere, bearing witness, testificari, and finally judging, judicare. One might speak of an interaction between a function of control and a function of decision. Thomas sees this sequence according to the Aristotelian model of deductive reasoning, but he is careful to emphasize what is peculiar to this knowledge of moral actions, whose conclusions do not come from mere knowing or thinking. Whether something is recognized or not depends, too, on the will, which can block the way to recognition or lead to it. It is dependent, that is to say, on an already formed moral character, which can either continue to deform or be further purified. On this level, the level of judgment, conscientia in the narrow sense, it can be said that even the erroneous conscience binds. The statement is completely intelligible from the rational tradition of scholasticism. 
no one may act against his convictions, as St. Paul had already said. Romans 14.23 But the fact that the conviction a person has come to certainly binds in the moment of acting does not signify a canonization of subjectivity. It is never wrong to follow the convictions one has arrived at. In fact, one must do so. But it can very well be wrong to have come to such askew convictions in the first place by having stifled the protest of the anomnesis of being. The guilt lies, then, in a different place, much deeper, not in the present act, not in the present judgment of conscience, but in the neglect of my being, which made me deaf to the internal promptings of truth. For this reason, criminals of conviction, like Hitler and Stalin, are guilty. These crass examples should not serve to put us at ease, but should rouse us to take seriously the earnestness of the plea, Free me from my unknown guilt. Psalm 19, 13 Epilogue Conscience and Grace At the end, there remains the question with which we began. Is not the truth, at least as the faith of the Church shows it to us, too lofty and difficult for man? Taking into consideration everything we have said, we can respond as follows. Certainly the high road to truth and goodness is not a comfortable one. It challenges man. Nevertheless, retreat into self, however comfortable, does not redeem. The self withers away and it becomes lost. But in ascending the heights of the good, man discovers more and more the beauty which lies in the arduousness of truth, which constitutes redemption for him. We would dissolve Christianity into moralism if no message which surpasses our own actions became discernible. Without many words, an image from the Greek world can show this to us. In it we can observe simultaneously both how the anamnesis of the Creator extends from within us outward toward the Redeemer, and how everyone may see him as Redeemer because he answers our own innermost expectations. I am speaking of the story of the expiation of the sin of matricide of Orestes. He had committed the murder as an act of conscience. This is designated by the mythological language of obedience to the command of the god Apollo. But he now finds himself hounded by the Furies, or Erinies, be seen as mythological personifications of conscience, which, from a deeper wellspring of recollection, reproach Orestes, declaring that his decision of conscience, his obedience to the saying of the gods, was in reality guilt. The whole tragedy of man comes to light in this dispute of the gods, that is to say, in this conflict of conscience. In the holy court, the white stone of Athena leads to Orestes' acquittal, his sanctification in the power of which the Erinues are 
transformed into the humanides, the humanities, spirits of reconciliation. Atonement has transformed the world. The myth, while representing the transition from a system of blood vengeance to a right order of community, signifies much more than just that. Hans Urs von Balthasar expressed this more as follows, quote, Calming grace always assists in the establishing of justice, not the old graceless justice of the Erinues period, but that which is full of grace. This myth speaks to us of the human longing that consciences objectively just indictment and the attendant destructive interior distress it causes in man not be the last word. It thus speaks of an authority of grace, a power of expiation which allows the guilt to vanish and makes truth at last truly redemptive. It is the longing for a truth which doesn't just make demands of us, but also transforms us through expiation and pardon. Through these, as Aeschylus puts it, guilt is washed away, and our being is transformed from within, beyond our own capability. This is the real innovation of Christianity. The Logos, the truth in person, is also the atonement, the transforming forgiveness above and beyond our capability and incapability. Therein lies the real novelty upon which the larger Christian memory is founded, and which indeed at the same time constitutes the deeper answer to what the anamnesis of the Creator expects of us. Where this center of the Christian anamnesis is not sufficiently expressed and appreciated, truth becomes a yoke which is too heavy for our shoulders, and from which we must seek to free ourselves. But the freedom gained thereby is empty. It leads into the desolate land of nothingness and disintegrates of itself. Yet the yoke of truth, in fact, became easy. Matthew eleven thirty, When the truth came, loved us, and consumed our guilt in the fire of his love. Only when we know and experience this from within will we be free to hear the message of conscience with joy and without fear. That was the third and final part of Joseph Ratzinger's talk in 1991 to a group of bishops. The talk was called Conscience and Truth. In the great social debates we are having about conscience, I think it's good for Catholics to know more about the word they are invoking. So let us strive to know better the parameters of conscience and how to form it well and why we have to form it well. And if we don't know these things cannot properly defend conscience when it is under attack. To conclude this podcast, here is once again the prayer for the protection of religious liberty developed by the United States bishops for their fortnight for freedom campaign. O God, our Creator, through the power and working of your Holy Spirit, you call us to live out our faith in the midst of the world, bringing the light 
and the saving truth of the gospel to every corner of society. We ask you to bless us in our vigilance for the gift of religious liberty. Give us the strength of mind and heart to readily defend our freedoms when they are threatened. Give us courage in making our voices heard on the behalf of the rights of your church and the freedom of conscience of people of faith. Grant, we pray, O Heavenly Father, a clear and united voice to all your sons and daughters gathered in your church in this decisive hour in the history of our nation, so that with every trial withstood and every danger overcome, for the sake of our children, our grandchildren, and all who come after us, this great land will always be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. also called What Does the Prayer Really Say? WDTPRS.com That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra dot com You can also just Google Father Z. There are some good discussions there and usually a pretty lively com box. There's also a donation button which I invite you to use even as you're scanning around and hopefully benefiting from the work that's gone into it and the participation of so many people from around the world. So until the next podcast, please Pray for me as I will for you. Again, that was the Army Chorus performing the Battle Hymn of the Republican. His truth is marching on. What a beautiful rendition of that, and certainly a theme of both the President's talk as well as the Holy Fathers. There was a lot of overlap in their two talks, and as they go into their now.